You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 475, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. The mononymous Spike Alakwa is the sort of person who throws around the words mononymous. Having derived the MVC pattern from first principles in Perl, he discovered Rails and never looked back. And that was after he had already started the world's first ISP. Spike is principal software engineer at Precipio. When he's not coding, parenting, or organizing his first conference, he rides his bike a lot. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Spike. Hi, Brittany. It's nice to be here. It is great to have you. And it's always a joy to have someone on the show who listens to the show. So let me publicly say thank you for listening. And so I would like to know what your developer origin story is, Spike. All right. Well, you can't see me, viewers, but I'm actually older. I'm in my 50s. I've been doing this for a very long time. So I'll try to keep my developer origin story short. I actually went to college to become a software developer. And they called them programmers way back then. But at the time, they really didn't know how to teach programming. So they just threw a bunch of programming languages at you. And I never used any of them. Out of college, I got a job just doing software development. I was actually working on Unix systems, doing a GUI interface for databases, if you can believe that, was something people were trying to do in the mid-80s. That job lasted about a year, and then I fell into another job, which was going to be a sort of Unix software consultancy. Didn't quite work out, but we pivoted and ended up becoming the first internet service provider, which then led to me working on websites, which led me to Perl. And I worked in Perl for many years, doing something that we would now recognize as MVC. It wasn't fancy. It wasn't something I would ever share and I'd be embarrassed to show. But at some point in the early 2000s, I was listening to a podcast. I think it was the Distributing the Future podcast. And they mentioned Rails and what it did. And I was hooked and I have been using it ever since. That's amazing. I've heard so many times that Matt's has talked about how Ruby is inspired by Perl. It's kind of like when you start using Elixir, you can see how Elixir is inspired by Ruby. Was it an easy transition from Perl to Ruby? It was. Perl was not object-oriented like Ruby is, but I had, in all those random programming languages I learned in college, there were a couple of object-oriented languages, and there was a lot of Lisp. So there's a lot of things that were very similar, and I took it to it very quickly. Do you happen to remember what version of Rails you got started with? It was one point something. Oh, goodness. (laughs) So you went through the entire MERB two to three transition. Did you have to upgrade any apps during that time? I did, and I think I've blocked out most of that, but did do some (laughs) two to three upgrades. It's so much easier now. I have this obsession with Jason Charns on Remote Ruby of like getting all the people who were involved in like that whole transition from two to three, like onto a panel and just talk about experiences or people who have like battle tested that transition. Mm -hmm. I've only made the upgrade from two to four, went right over three once and it was absolutely horrific. So the kids nowadays don't know what it's like to do a nasty Rails upgrade. (laughs) They don't. And that's good. That's part of how we've grown, right? Exactly. Well, you reached out to me to talk about something that I am just pumped to talk about. And that is that you are bringing the local conference Rocky Mountain Ruby back. And so I want to hear 
all about this. I essentially am starting at ground zero. So Spike, tell me and the listeners what's going on there. So Rocky Mountain Ruby was a conference that started in 2010. It was run by Marty Hout. And he started it and it ran for about, I think, seven years. It went through a couple of different organizers. I think he did it for three and then other people took over. And it eventually ended up with Turing, which is a code boot camp based in Denver. And they ran it for a couple of years, but got distracted by other things. And then the pandemic happened. So it just sort of died out. So for a small conference, it usually ran about 200 people. It had a lot of great speakers. Matt spoke once, Sandy Matz, Jim Warwick, Aaron Patterson. Marty was very good at getting people to come and Boulder is a place people want to visit. So for a small conference, it had some really good talks and I really enjoyed it. I did for several years, you the person in charge of the Wi-Fi though, and, and I don't recommend that as anything anyone ever do. You spend more time rebooting routers than you do listening to talks. Anyway, so it was a really good conference, but it died out and was kind of forgotten. I hadn't been going to conferences even before the pandemic. I had gotten busy and sort of stopped doing that. And then, of course, the pandemic came and everything was remote and just not as engaging. But this last November, I ended up going to RubyConf Mini. And I had a really good time there and started thinking about how I would like to go to more Ruby conferences, especially small Ruby conferences. So I reached out to Marty and asked if I could attempt to bring back Rocky Mountain Ruby. That's so awesome. I spent a couple years as a Rails support engineer for Ninefold, which is now a defunct Rails hosting company. But during that one year that I was a Rails support engineer, part of my role was going to small Ruby conferences and like meeting developers. And I got to go to a lot of really cool conferences like Cascadia and GoRuco. But Rocky Mountain Ruby has always been on my list. And I think we've just seen like a huge resurgence of the smaller Ruby conferences. I mean, Blue Ridge Ruby will be starting any day now. Currently, as we're recording this, Rail SAS conference is happening in Greece. There's a lot of smaller conferences that are coming back. Sin City Ruby was announced again for next year. So that's exciting. I am curious, Spike, do you have anybody helping you to bring this conference back to life? Yeah, actually, I do. So I've been talking to Marty, who's interested in helping and has been very good giving me advice on how he ran it. I've also been talking to Jeremy Smith, who's putting on Blue Ridge Ruby, and to Andy Kroll of Brighton Ruby. They've all been very helpful. They were all at RailsConf, so I was able to talk to them in person there, get some advice. I'm this close to just creating a sound effect for this podcast for every time someone says that Andy Kroll has helped them. We're a big <laughs> fan of him here. And he is amazing. He is very willing is. to help everybody. Yes, yeah, seriously. So what are the dates and the location for Rocky Mountain Ruby to make that official? So Rocky Mountain Ruby is going to be in Boulder, Colorado. October 5th and 6th. Okay, so you probably saw the meme that was going around that I'm fairly certain RubyConf Thailand made. And that was around the fact that Ruby and Rails conference organizers really love that group of dates because Rocky Mountain Ruby will be happening at the same time as RubyConf Thailand and at the same time as Rails World. So I'm curious, how did you land on those dates? 
So Rocky Mountain Ruby traditionally happened at the end of September, beginning of October. And that date was a date that was far enough out in the future that I could get papers in, talks planned. It's also a date that does not have a University of Colorado football game. Really makes it hard to get a hotel in Boulder. I did not know exactly what dates those other two conferences are beyond. I'm not super worried about that. There's not a lot of overlap between people who are going to choose between Thailand and Boulder. Maybe. I don't know. I think it'll be fine. I think there's room for three conferences on that same weekend. That said, next time, if I do this again in 2024, I'll look a little more closely and maybe have it a little earlier in September. Well, I think we're having an issue now, which is a good issue to have, is that you can plan very well, right? And pick your weekend. And as these new conferences get announced, it is totally possible like that we're going to start colliding with one another, which I think is okay. And to your point, does beg a question, would there be crossover with these three different conferences? Because to the people that I've been talking to, it feels like people are ramping up. They want to go to conferences again, especially the smaller ones but they only have so many in them a year. And so as long as you get notice early enough, you can get one of those spots for somebody's conference itinerary for the year, right? Yeah, I think so. So The downside is, of course, you're competing for speakers. Both Mats and Gemma are speaking at RubyConf Thailand, so they're obviously not speaking at Rocky Mount Ruby. (laughs) That is very true. This episode is brought to you by Honey Badger. Monitoring, like web development, can be complicated. There are tons of tools and techniques, but you just want to know that your app is up and running and that your customers are happy. When your customers encounter a problem, you need clear, actionable intelligence, not walls of charts and reams of logs to tail. That's why we built Honey Badger, the monitoring tool we have always wanted. A tool that's where you need it, when you need it, and it gets out of your way when you don't, so you can keep shipping. With Honey Badger, you can know when critical errors occur and which customers are affected. You can respond instantly when your systems go down. You can improve the health of your systems over time. And of course, fix problems before your customers can report them. Honey Badger is the application health monitoring tool built for you, the developer who cares about a quality product and happy customers. Start monitoring today at honeybadger.io. Honey Badger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Once again, that is honeybadger.io. Link is in the show notes. So you mentioned that you went to RubyConf Mini and we have done several episodes with Gemma and Emily about RubyConf Mini and how they were able to pull that off. And it was a smaller conference. I was also there as well and I loved it. Mm -hmm. So Spike, why are small conferences important in the Ruby community? Why did you like that conference so much? It was just a nice size, I think, that you could meet a lot of people at a bigger conference as a RailsConf, as I said, a couple months back. And that was a good conference too. I probably met as many people, but you don't feel like you've met everybody and everybody you want to meet, if that makes sense. I also like the single track format. It was hard at RailsConf to pick things that I wanted to see. There were conflicts. Remember, there was a slot that your podcast panel was in, which was also up against Drew Bragg's game show. And there was another talk in that period that I could only go to one. So I, I do like that things are a little more focused. And it's, you know, I think a two-day conference, which is what I'm having, which is also what Blue Ridge Ruby is, is a little easier to commit to. I agree. I just want to make it official with the listeners. If there's ever a choice between me and Drew Bragg, always go with Drew Bragg. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I've got to say, I, uh, you know, I went to Rubikoff Mini and I had stopped listening to technical podcasts at some point in the past for whatever reason, probably because of when I stopped commuting. I listened to a lot of your podcasts way back in the day. I listened to Ruby 5 and the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, which used to be a Ruby podcast, which is now more of a software development podcast. But I really wasn't listening to any Ruby podcasts. And then I went to the podcast panel at RubyConf Mini that you hosted. And now I'm listening to all the podcasts. Welcome, Spike. We have you ensnared now. (laughs) You can thank Paul as well because he edits a lot of those podcasts and he makes them sound very smooth. So we are very grateful to have Paul. So what's the plans for opening up the CFP? Are you aiming for a single track conference? Is there any particular themes that you would like to see with the CFP? Is this your first time even reviewing talks for a conference? What are you thinking? So yeah, the CFP is open now. The link will be in the show notes. And I am hoping to get somewhere between 10 and 15 talks to spread over those two days. I am looking for talks that are appropriate for all audiences. Because it's a single track, we're going to have a mix of experience levels in the audience. I don't want people to feel that things are whooshing over their heads or to be bored because things are too simple. But at the same time, you don't want people to dumb things down. You don't want talks to be too basic or too advanced. So I'm hoping for talks that are entertaining for everybody, even if the material doesn't land squarely with them. I love that. Do you have anybody helping you to review the talks? So Boulder has actually a really active Ruby group, the Boulder Ruby group. So a bunch of the folks there have volunteered to review the talks and help me pick them out. And I'm going to kind of do a balance thing. Like those people are going to review them as blindly as possible. But once they've voted on them, I'm going to sort of curate them because I do want to, as I say, have a lineup that is appropriate for everybody and as diverse as we can manage. I am curious with it being called Rocky Mountain Ruby, are you going to try to limit how many talks are in the rail space or do you not have a strong opinion on that? I don't have a strong opinion on that. I definitely like to see some pure Ruby talks and maybe talks about other frameworks like Hanami. But I think the majority of Rails developers that I know do, of Ruby developers I know are working with Rails. So I think that's okay. Are you going to MC the conference? Yes. How nervous are you? I'm a little nervous now. I know once I get up there, I will be fine. But thinking about it makes me nervous. You will absolutely be fine. I think you're going to be a natural at it. And I agree. Our community is so loving and so welcoming that like I would be nervous beforehand. But once you get up there and you get like your first laugh in, I think you'll be good to go. Well, thanks. I hope so. So is your plan to record the talks and make them available later? Or is it going to be one of those situations you've got to be there to see it? So I'm taking a page from Blue Ridge Ruby and we're having stretch goals. So I would very much love to record the talks and put them up, assuming the speakers agree to that. But it's going to depend on how many tickets we sell, if we can afford to do that. I think that was an excellent idea that Jeremy had. So that sort of t-shirts, stickers, other kinds of swag, the quality of the breakfast burritos, whatever. It's just based that off the number of tickets you sell. So that way, I'm hoping to have a conference that if only 50 people show up, it'll work. 
But if 200 people show up, it'll be an even better experience. I agree. I think it's smart because it allows you to definitely put the conference on as long as you hit that minimum, like the conference is a go. And it also just kind of exposes the various different costs that I think a lot of attendees take for granted. So by making it clear, like those stretch goals, you're just making the conference better and better. And you're giving that responsibility to your attendees and sponsors. Yeah, I think it should work out nicely. I'm very much looking forward to talking to Jeremy in a couple of weeks when he's done and seeing how it went for him. That'll give me a good sense of how it might go for me. I completely agree. I'm hoping he does an episode on Indie Rails that just like kind of does like the recap of how that conference went, because like I said, I definitely have FOMO for not going, but I want to hear like what he learned from it because he is truly like a first time conference organizer. Yep. So one thing that we mentioned at RailsConf during the community town hall, and this was actually Jeremy as well, big fan of him, is we mentioned that it would be really great if Ruby Central could organize like a toolkit for conference organizers so that you're not starting from ground zero. If should you decide to bring a conference back or start a new conference and make sure to consider things that most people don't think about insurance dates, hotels, locations, websites, like all of that kind of stuff. Do you think that's something that would have been valuable for you? Oh, definitely. It's been helpful, as I say, talking to people who've organized conferences in the past, and especially Jeremy, who's several months ahead of me, so I can learn from what he's learning. But yeah, having a toolkit would definitely be useful. I'm still learning about insurance. Getting the venue was actually harder than I thought it would be. And once I nailed it down, they require insurance. So there's a lot of nuance to this and a lot of things that I don't know that it would be great if there was just, here's the playbook. And every conference is going to be a little different, but I think there's a lot of stuff that is the same. I agree. So before we move on from Rocky Mountain Ruby, what would you say is the big question mark for you at this point? What's the one thing that you're just like kind of drumming your fingers together and saying, we'll see how this turns out? I think it's mostly the CFP. I've got a few now and they hope to be very good, but I do not have enough. And both Jeremy and Andy told me that you'll get them all the last minute. But right now I'm nervous about that. When does the CFP close? The CFP closes on July 15th. So get your proposals into me. I love that. Okay. Well, that is definitely plenty of time to you know, this episode will come out weeks ahead of that. So listeners, you have permission right now to pause the episode, go fill out your CFP, and then come on back to us because we are about to talk about Spike's initial reactions to all of the AI things that are currently happening. As you noted, Spike, during your bio, like you have been doing software for a while. And so I think AI has been around for a while, but now the word chat GPT is now a household name. So what you thinking? I'm finding it very interesting. So in the last two months or so, I started using GitHub Copilot and finding it quite helpful for doing sort of boilerplate work. It does a pretty good job of... Let's say laying the foundation. Can't, can't ever quite trust it. There are a lot of common mistakes it makes. It's really bad at guessing what the hash keys should be. So I find I have to look at it. But I am finding it's making me more productive. I'm spending less time just sort of setting up the problem and having more time to spend solving it. So does this mean that you use VS Code as your editor or are you using GitHub Copilot in a different type of editor? 
I'm actually using Emacs most of the time. Really? <laughs> really. So I've been using Emacs for 30 something years now. And, and I do play with VS Code. There are things that VS Code does well, but I have a lot of muscle memory for Emacs. But some folks took the VS Code plugin and ported it to NeoVim. And then someone took that and ported it to Emacs. So you can actually use Copilot in Emacs and Vim. This episode is brought to you by FastRuby.io. Do you need to upgrade Rails but don't have the budget? FastRuby.io has a Rails upgrade service that offers fixed cost monthly upgrade services starting at $1,000 per month. Make your code base more than 1% more maintainable every month. Schedule a call to discuss our technical debt remediation services at FastRuby.io. Remember, plans start at $1,000 per month. Thanks to FastRuby.io for supporting the show. So tell me what Proofstipio does, and is it a situation where you could eventually see integrating AI into it? So Proofstipio is actually a large Atlassian consultancy. Okay. Um, they mostly focus on working with organizations to streamline their JIRA processes and confluence and those sort of things. I'm in a very tiny part of it that actually landed there through an acquisition. So it was a very small software development team and a decent-sized company. But that said, I do think we do a lot of integration work with Jira and Confluence. We do add-on development. And we are looking at, could things like ChatGPT help write user stories or look at issue and say, hey, this is a poorly written issue. And based on that, we think the estimate is way off that, that sort of thing. So does that mean you're legally obligated to tell me that you love Jira? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, I don't have to use Jira that much. I know an awful lot about Jira APIs and integrating with Jira. And I would consider myself a gifted novice when it comes to actually using Jira. Are you writing in Ruby and Rails every day in your current job? And like, how does the ecosystem around Ruby, Rails, and Jira currently look like? I often am. A lot of the integration points are basically iframes. They have fancier names for them. But ultimately, you're generating HTML and that's going to show up somewhere in Jira. And so I can do that in Rails and, and tend to do that. Can I tell you, so currently at Shogun, and this is my first experience using Jira. And it's not that bad. I mean, of all the memes and everything, it's truly not that bad. I miss shortcut slash clubhouse sometimes, but Jira's fine. I thought I would be cheeky the other day and I had to fill out an epic in Jira. So I was like, I'll go to chat GPT and have it do it for me. But I made the mistake of not telling chat GPT what Jira was. I just assumed <laughs> it would know what Jira was. And I was like, hey, give me this epic description for Jira. And it thought Jira was a mythical fantasy land. And it wrote me an epic about mythical fantasy land. And I really felt compelled to use it. But I did. I showed restraint, Spike. <laughs> you have to find some place to use it, though. That's great. I know, right? It's quite well written. I was very impressed. I will say, and I've talked to Drew Bragg about this. I tend to open ChatGPT probably once or twice a day, just to like get ideas started on something that I need to do. And it is kind of scary how fast it moves. And it's kind of scary how good it is. Yeah. And I think it's just going to get better and better. I agree. 
And to sort of circle back to what you said earlier about what do I think of this over a long development career? I mean, it's been great to see the tools evolve over the time I've been doing this. When I started, full screen editors were sort of a novelty. You know, most of that editing was line oriented, which you can't even imagine how hard it is to edit your code when you can only do one line at a time. And then we got nice full screen editors. Emacs came along, VI, then Jam, code completion, LSPs, just syntax highlighting was wonderful when it appeared. And I just think this is another thing in our toolbox to just make us more productive. And I think that's great. I do not think it's going to replace programmers. I think it's just going to let us do more, bigger, better things. I can do in an afternoon what used to take me a month. So I'm very interested to see what I will be able to do in an afternoon and after a few years of this shaking out. I graduated from university in 2007. And I remember back then they said that they were coming up with ways to replace programmers. And I just kind of look back on that time and cackle just because yes. like developer boot camps have happened and give me a break. <laughs> I will believe it when I see it, when we've actually come up with something to replace developers. We're just giving them more tools so that way they can spend more time doing the hard stuff as yep. opposed to the linters and the iterative stuff that like just does not require the thought. Yes, I agree completely. As long as I've been doing this too. That's been the story, right? We're going to get tools so that non-developers can write software. And we have those tools, but what people want out of software keeps evolving and becoming more complex. And so those tools help the end user do simpler things. But what it is people really want at the end of the day keeps pushing further out. And I feel like the real value of SaaS software, and you can quote me on this, is being able to take the tools that you love and have them talk to each other. And nobody has been able to solve that in a no-code fashion. And when yes. that happens, now we can talk. But yeah, you can create no-code tools all you want, but they're not going to talk to each other. And that's the value. Yeah, for sure. I do so, think we're going through a hype cycle where... People are going to talk about, oh, pretty soon chat GPT is going to build your SaaS product. I just don't see that. But people are going to believe that for a while. And it's something we're going to have to deal with. If we got past NFTs, we can get past this. Yes. <laughs> Spike, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? I think it's looking really good. Obviously, back when I started with Rails, that was when it was cool and new and hot and everybody was getting on it. And then the people who chased the cool and new and hot moved on to whatever came next. But we're still here. And it really feels to me, going to these conferences, listening to these podcasts, that it's sort of come back around. Rails especially solves a problem. Is how do I build a good website rapidly without having to do a lot of plumbing? It solved that problem. There are other things that have come along, Express, Elixir, Phoenix, those kind of things. but. Rails still does it well. And I think people have sort of come back around to like, if this is what you need, if you need to build a platform on the web, Rails is a good choice. There are other good choices, but it's a solid one. It's a proven one. There are plenty of Ruby developers around and it continues to evolve in nice ways. Very interested to see what people end up doing with Turbo and Hotwire and those sort of things. Love just to write less JavaScript. And I think that's definitely a possibility with the way things are going. 
How can listeners follow you and Rocky Mountain Ruby? So Rocky Mountain Ruby can be found at rockymtnruby.dev. Important thing to note, if you take over an old conference, you may have lost the domain. It used to be .com and it's not coming back. It's now squatted. And for me, probably the best place to find me is stuff-things.net, which is my poor neglected blog. Spike, thank you so much for coming on the show today and answering all my questions about Rocky Mountain Ruby. It is no small task to organize a conference, especially one that was as beloved as Rocky Mountain Ruby. And so I wish you all the luck. And listeners, please go ahead and submit your talks to Rocky Mountain Ruby's CFP. The link is in the show notes. Spike, it was great to have you. It was great to be on. I really enjoyed talking to you and I really enjoy the podcast. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.